morning. How are you doing today? Listen, if you went to beach camp, you're entitled to a nap. You're not going to offend me, okay? We'll get that out of the way right now. Poor, our poor staff, they're like, oh. they have that, you know, sun-kissed glow about them, but yeah, their eyes, they need a nap. Today is a great nap for our staff and those who went uh, to beach camp. So uh, if you went, thank you. I want to take a moment and welcome our LaGrange campus and our Facebook viewers. We're so glad that you're here with us today. And uh, it's an exciting, exciting week. God has really moved in the life of our church this week, in the life of our students and so many families. And so we want to celebrate that. We're grateful for what he's done. And for those of you who made the, the way for that, um, for the 84 st- adults that went to camp, God bless you. You're entitled to a nap. We get that. So on, on uh, Tuesday, May 3rd, a, a month ago today, actually, I woke up. Uh, uh, startled at where I was. Does it ever happen to you? Like you, you're, in a, you're in a deep sleep and all of a sudden you wake up and you just don't know where you're at. In this case, in this scenario, our German short-haired pointer was in my face and he was wailing with pain. It was uh, one of those weird, weird things that, uh, that happened to me. You see, I was in his doghouse. Now, a couple of things about that. I'm not built to sleep in the doghouse. I, am, uh, I work hard. I'm a man of means. I have more beds in my house than I have people to sleep in them. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I've heard about some of you men being in the doghouse, but I've never been there before. And literally, I woke up in the doghouse. Have you ever been dreaming in the middle of a, uh, maybe a game show dream where you're about to win, and all of a sudden, you wake up to a very different reality? In some cases, we wake up to a very hard reality because of the lives we live. Maybe it's the, it's, we wake up to the loss of a loved one, or we wake up to uh, the struggle with cancer or a broken relationship, the loss of innocence or a wayward child. Reality comes crashing in from that moment of reprieve when we were asleep. With the struggles of, daily, uh, of our daily lives and all the challenges that we have day in and day out, this series sounds pretty exciting to me, Two Tickets to Paradise. Heck, I would love two tickets to a Braves game right now. Are you with me? And yet we get so bogged down with the reality of day-to-day life that, that we get pulled out of that way of thinking and that op- opportunity. Paradise is elusive. like it's, it's an illusion for some, just a dream for others. It's a, it's a faint and fleeting hope yet for others. And some of us, in a moment's notice, are willing to risk it all for a shot at paradise. We'll, we'll roll the dice and go after it. So our series today kicks off the new series. Our series starts off in, in the book of Genesis. We're talking about paradise. So we want to take a biblical look at the origin of the word paradise today. Apart from John 3.16, in my opinion, Genesis 3 is the most important passage in Scripture apart from John 3.16. So what we want to look at is uh, understand what is paradise. Uh, from an Old Testament perspective, it's a Persian word that means an enclosed garden. Uh, it, it means an area enclosed by a wall. In the Hebrew Bible, it's used three times. Hebrew is a, a pretty general language, and so it's not as specific as Greek. So in the Hebrew Bible, it's used three times, this specific word, and it means the same thing all three times. But if we look at the, the Septuagint, the, the Greek Old Testament, we get a, a more clear picture about the term paradise here. It's the word uh, paradiso, which means uh, the Garden of Eden, the Garden of God, literally the Garden of God. And so paradise, from a biblical perspective is identified, is illustrated, is defined as the Garden of God, the Garden of Eden. 
So we understand from the Old Testament, human history, we're looking at it from the Old Testament, this, this issue and thought of paradise is that we would go to a holding place and wait for the Messiah to come, and then we would be able to enter into the, the final and permanent paradise. But all that changed, all that changed completely um, in Luke twenty three forty three with the conversation that Jesus had with the, thief, the penitent thief on the cross, right? What did he say to the penitent thief on the cross? He said, today... Because you believe today, you will be with me in paradise. So that from a New Testament perspective, we're looking at it from the Jewish perspective and understanding that all that intermediate area, that time period of waiting is now fulfilled because Jesus is the Messiah. And so we understand from that that ultimately the ultimate paradise that we have to look forward as Christ followers, the ultimate paradise, we will be in the presence of God the moment we die because that's what Jesus said. So we understand that. The intermediate state is gone. According to the book of Genesis, man was created day six, right? If you went to VBS, you learned all that. Day six, man was created, and he was placed in paradise. We started in the garden. God himself created this garden. This garden was paradise. We know the story. It was perfect. There was no crime, no poverty. There were no latchkey kids. There were no challenges. There was no loss. It was a perfect uh, paradise. And yet... Why was it important for Jesus to have a discussion with the penitent thief on the cross? Why? What happened between then and now, or then and then, for Jesus to have to have that discussion? What happened was sin. We get it. The Bible makes less sense until we understand the first few chapters of Genesis. It really does. We need to understand that. It becomes more clear when that happens. And consequently, if you want to understand the Old Testament, we need, to, uh, we need to know and read and study the New Testament. The New Testament is the key to unlock the Old Testament. So we have this cycle of, of information. That's why it's so important to have good theology, so important to be in the Word, so important to understand what took place from then to now to get us where we are. In Genesis 3 today, we are going to uh, see, fo- uh, see four things that occur in a very short time frame. When you begin looking at the Word of God as the Word of God, you will see from understanding the New Testament that Jesus is on every page in the Old Testament. We want to get that out of the way. That that paradise is not something that's out there beyond our reach. And it wasn't beyond their reach. So today, as we uncover these, these four things, think in those terms. Here are the four things. There was a conversation that took place. There was a choice that was made. There was uh, an unmistakable presence of God. And then there was the effect. What were the outcomes of this? So open up to Genesis 3, verses 1 through 5, and we're going to start right there. Camp, you can do better than that. Open up the board of God to Genesis 3, 1 through 5. There we go. If we can't cheer for that, we can't cheer for anything. They were at camp all week. God bless you. Next week, do the same thing. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other. Hold on a second. Serpent. There was a snake in the garden, ladies and gentlemen. We got that? There was a snake in the garden. Anybody in here snake people? Keep your, hand, oh, keep your hands down. There was a snake in the garden. There was a serpent that was more crafty than any other beast of the field <clears throat> that the Lord God had made. It's an important point. He said to the woman, the serpent says to the woman, did God actually say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you should not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the middle, the midst of the garden. 
neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. If we really dig into that phrase, be like God, we understand what he's saying. He's saying, be as God. One to rival God. You will be as God. And so woman, as she's referred to here, is taking a shortcut of knowing good and evil. Can you imagine achieving this by trying to outwit God? Who in the world are we to think that that can happen? Who in the world was she? God will, from this moment on, if she is successful, be the rival and the enemy of Adam and Eve. You see, this is so important. Eve followed her impressions against her instructions. She chose self-fulfillment as her goal. That's what this is all about. She was given very clear instructions as to what to do and not to do. She chose her impressions over her instructions. It's an important part. Three key things about the conversation. Eve listened to a creature rather than the creator. Think about that for a moment. Talking about secondhand information. See, in the creature, the, the serpent, partial truth was presented, right? And we know that if you get partial truth, that's 100% false. Like the only way you can make a good decision in life is to have accurate information. And so when we share part of the truth, there's still a gap there. It's like saying that 90% obedience is obedience. It's not. It's disobedience. 90% obedience is disobedience. So as we look at this, this deception that occurred in this conversation is significant. So it's also important to see here the word for serpent in Hebrew is nakash, which means what? It means a shining and beautiful one. So this serpent uh, was very different than my perspective of snakes today. It was a shiny and beautiful one. In this time, it described this beautiful creature. That's what the word was. Now, it was actually the most beautiful of all the shining creatures. This is an important thing. When we tie this together with, uh, with, with the word for Satan, the other word for Satan is Lucifer. And what does that mean? It means bearer of light. So we know at one time Lucifer was a powerful angel and that he was cast down. We understand from Scripture that he is the one who is personified in the serpent. We know that for sure. How do we know that? We under, this is a great example of how the Old Testament is explained by the New Testament. If we get into Revelation uh, twelve nine, here's what it says. It mentions how the great dragon was hurled down, the ancient serpent called, of, called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to earth and his angels with him. You see, we understand that the tempter in the passage, in the serpent, was Satan himself. We, we get that very clearly, not just from Revelation, but from other scripture as well. Which begs the question, why is Satan after us? Why would Satan want to come after and challenge the life of a believer? Well, there's really only one reason, and that is to cause us to turn from God. Now, not completely, because in the life of a believer, our eternity is already set. You see, he can't steal our eternity from us. We are set as Christ followers, as Christ believers. Our eternity is already set. But 
what he, so he's lost the battle for our souls. But what he wants to do is he wants to steal our paradise perspective is what he wants to do. He wants to uh, help you and challenge you to miss God's best for your life. You see, Jesus said Satan is a liar. He is the father of all lies. He cannot speak the truth. And the Bible it also says that he's a murderer. He wants to kill you, kill your joy, kill your purity. He wants to, to steal everything from you. As much as God loves us, Satan hates us. He wants to take everything from us because he understands when we're neutralized, what happens? See, we view Satan as this cartoon character in red tights with horns. It's not presented that way. He doesn't present himself that way. He came to Eve as a beautiful creature. The same way he comes to us. He's always very appealing. The second thing about this conversation was that Eve was targeted uh, as part of this deception. She was the target. He did it when she was alone. When she, had pulled, she was created from Adam, and when she was alone, he, he approached her and began the conversation. We should take from that that it's not good for a believer to live alone. We should be in groups. We should be in a community of believers. We should be uh, accountable one to another and not out there on our own. And the, th the third thing about this is that he, uh, he, he chose a really interesting tactic that's been the same tactic that he uses still today. In the last part of verse 1, the first recorded words of Satan are these. Did God really say you must not eat from the, any tree in the garden? Did he really say that? You see, Satan tries to put a question mark where God has placed a period. He tries to take something that God has said definitively and put a question mark there. It's like we're missing out on a lot of great things by following God's plan. It's, it's, God never said don't eat from the tree of life. A lot of people miss this. What did he say? He said don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But he said everything else you can enjoy. Eve, Adam, there's one place. Stay away from it. And what did Satan say? Hey, did God really say that? Is that what he meant? You see, Satan's goal is to take the authoritative word of God and put a question mark every place there's a period. Think of it this way. He wants you to question the authority of the word of God. He wants you to question the accuracy of the word of God. And he wants to question, most of all, the application of the word of God in your life. That is the deception that we live under today. Think about this. In this conversation, he smuggled in the assumption that God's word is sub subject to our judgment Think about that. Let that soak in for just a moment. He planted the thought that God's word is subject to our judgment, how we feel about it. And guess what? How we feel about the word of God, how we view it, what we believe about it, how we, what we think about it, any doubts, how we live it, absolutely does nothing to change the character and essence of God or the word of God. But what it does do is it immobilizes us from the demonstration of our faith in our communities. And there is tremendous loss when that occurs. Eve took the bait. When the Bible speaks to something, this is God speaking to it. But Satan wants to question the truth of the word of God. In God's voice, his approach hasn't changed much at all. What he's saying to us today is this. Hey, go after it. Why not? You're missing out on all the fun of life. That's the false paradise that he wants us to chase. Because if we're chasing the false paradise, we're immobilized 
as Christ's followers, from pointing people to the real paradise. See, as a believer, true paradise comes the moment we take our last breath here. Because of sin, we have struggles in this life now. We can blame Adam and Eve for that, and we're going to blame them more and more as this uh, morning goes on. There's a second um, thing here that we want to see. It's, it's the choice. Eve made a choice. Genesis 3, verses 6 and 7. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight uh, to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate it. Now, we know the story. It's an apple. It's really not an apple. It's, the, it's, a, it's, a, it's a different kind of fruit. I just threw that in there because, you know, I learned that in the children's Bible a long time ago. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And what did they do? They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So what this means to us, thousands of years later, a couple thousand years later, is that the father of, and mother of humanity, Adam and Eve, of all of humanity, made a decision to sin. They chose self over God. And in that moment, in the moment that they followed their impressions against their instructions, they made self-fulfillment their priority in life in that moment. They chose their impressions over their instructions and made self-fulfillment their choice, their priority in life. When that happened, they planted in each of us a seed, a tendency of sin. We're born with it. We don't have to learn how to do it. It's a, it's a series of destructive choices. Usually sin takes us a lot further than we want it to go, uh, to take us, because there is a process, sequential steps that go into place. A lot of times it will start with a visual stimulation, like we are in a very visual society, right? So it's a visual stimulation. And then as you think and entertain this, as you think, you speak. And eventually as you speak, you do, right? So it all starts here. It all starts with how we, what, how we see things, what we're doing, and then it winds up on our hands and feet. So we move from as you think, you speak, as you speak, you do. As you think, when you entertain thought, the thought to the point of temptation, that's when things begin to change, and, and the momentum, the pendulum begins to swing. Four missteps Eve took in this conversation. Step one, she entertained the unhealthy thoughts to the point of temptation. Was, so when the woman saw the tree uh, was good for food and that it was a delight to her eyes, she was tempted by that, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Now, now hold on a minute here. There's nothing wrong with a thought, okay? A lot of believers think that when they have a bad thought that they've sinned. It's not necessarily the truth. It may not even be a temptation. It, what happens is, is that you, the entertainment of that, I love what Billy Graham said about this. Billy Graham said, you can't, you, you can't keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. That's when we should be addressing the thought while it's in our head, not after it's manifest itself sinfully in our lives. So we should address the thought while it's in our head. Confess it, move it on, move it out, move forward. That's when we should handle that. We can't keep thoughts from running wild in our mind. We can't do that, but we, but we can deal with them while they're there. Eve entertained the thought to the point of temptation. That's what she did. As you think, you speak. So here's the second thing that happened. 
Eve misunderstood God's requirement. In verse 3, Eve said, God said, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. God never once said, don't touch it. She added to it. What God said was, don't eat it. How often do we add to God's requirements as men and women of God and make our lives much more difficult? Anytime we add to or take away from, we are creating heresy. As you speak, you do. You act on it. The temptation eventually becomes an action, which becomes a sin. What happens when we're in sin? Paradise is no, not so much paradise. So when the act becomes sin, I've heard men say this. Hey, I lusted after her. I went that, went that far in my mind. I might as well go all the way. That is the most stupid thing to ever come out of a human being's mouth. Why not? I'm thinking about it. Why don't I just go ahead and do it? That is pure ignorance. Biblically, it's ignorant. It's stupid. It's foolish. When Eve took the fruit, she touched it. She had it in her hand. She still hadn't sinned. She still hadn't sinned. The problem is she took a third step. What did she do? She ate it. It became part of her. It became part of her. She consumed it. She took its fruit and took the fruit and ate it. That's sin. And if she stopped right there, that would be bad enough. But what did she do? She became the spokesperson for sin in Adam's life. She gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Sin, ladies and gentlemen, when this happens in our lives, Satan can leave the room. He can literally leave the room. He's, he doesn't even need to be present anymore. Once we become spokespersons for sin, remember earlier, just a few moments ago, when I said, you know, we weren't made to live alone. We should live in groups and we should have common belief. The same goes for sin. I don't want to be a, self, a, a private sinner. I want people to join me. I want people to justify my sin. And guess what? As a Christ follower, I don't need to spend my life justifying my sin. Jesus did that on the cross. And so why would I become a spokesperson for sin? Hey, come do what I'm doing. Because I don't want to feel bad about myself. I'd rather feel bad about what other people are doing about, uh, in their lives. Satan can leave the room. It's so important for us to understand and study God's word, to know the truth of the gospel, to have good theology, to understand who Christ is, to have our own beliefs based on the word of God. If not, we can fall victims to deceitful conversations. We must stand on our own. It's not enough to come to church once a week. Have you ever heard the uh, story of how Eskimo kills a wolf? I heard this years ago, and it stuck with me. An Eskimo in the Arctic Circle, if they need a wolf, they'll take a very sharp razor blade, very sharp knife, and they'll dip it in seal blood or another blood, and they'll freeze it, and they'll do it again and again and again and again. And they wind up creating uh, basically a very deadly uh, blood popsicle. And so they'll freeze the knife handle in a block of ice or some other thing, and uh, they'll scatter some blood around it, and they'll wait for the wolves to come. The wolf shows up. Hmm, lunch. I love blood. The, that's the wolf's thought. So he goes after the blood, and he gets more and more and more. And, he, and, 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 and pretty soon a feeding frenzy will in, in, incur here and happen here. And at some point, the seal's blood gets mixed with his own blood. And he literally literally will take his own life and he doesn't know because he's, he has to have more and more and more. He's consumed by the blood. He's literally killing himself because he's consumed with the taste of blood. Same with us. We're tempted when, someone, uh, when something we think is not going to hurt us. 
goes too far. Before long, we get into a literal feeding frenzy over our sin or the sins of others, and we have no idea that we're literally killing ourselves. We are blinded by the reality of what's happening in the circumstance. And if we are with a body of believers, oftentimes those men and women of God can see that happening that we don't see in ourselves, and they can stop us. Think about this, if Satan can immobilize you from living well, from me from living well, from serving well, from sharing well, from demonstrating my, demonstrating my faith well, if he, can, if he can create chaos in the life of a weak believer, if he can get us to feast on our own sin and the sins of others, then we're immobilized, completely immobilized. Sure, we still have our salvation. Sure, when we die, we're going to go to heaven. But that's it. And if that were the intention of the Lord, we would go to heaven the moment we accept Christ. We are left here for a purpose. The intentionality of our lives matters. It matters to those around us. See, if we live a life of watered-down truth, partial truth is no truth at all. We have churches all over the country today that aren't preaching and teaching the truth. We have men and women of God all over uh, the world today that aren't in their word, understanding what God says and does. And we become less than who we should be. And when we are less than who we should be, we certainly can't be those we need to be for those around us, for those people where we live, work, learn, and play. We're not fulfilling the Great Commission. Less theology equals less truth, more self, less God. People can't defend what they believe. They're easy marks, just like Eve was. Genesis 3, verses 8 through 13, the Lord shows up. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. First of all, it's important to say, they didn't see him, they heard him. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called the man and said to him, where are you? And he, and he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. You see, what had happened from just a few moments ago was the loss of innocence. They were naked and not afraid earlier. They were fine in the garden. And now he's naked and afraid, the loss of innocence. What happens when we allow sin in our lives truly is a loss of freedom. They lost their freedom long before the Lord showed up, before God himself showed up. They had shame. Are you with me? We think sin has no impact or effect on us. It's because we're licking, the, licking a knife full of blood. Sin causes us to have this shame. And, it, and we think that, uh, how many times have you heard, I, being a Christian is too restrictive. I don't want God to control me. I want the freedom to do what I want to do. The freedom comes in Christ. We are in bondage if we're in sin. We blow it. Have you ever noticed how we shift blame in situations like this? If you're a little boy, we're masters at it. If you were ever a little boy, we're masters at it. Men, we're still masters at it. But here's, here's where it comes from. I'm going to blame it on heredity here. He said, who told, God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from that tree which I told you, uh, commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman, the woman who you gave me, uh, the, the woman, she gave me the fruit and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, the serpent, the, the serpent deceived me. The serpent did that poor serpent didn't have a leg to stand on 
It's a bad joke, isn't it? I've been practicing that all week. Sorry, that was inappropriate. Forgive me, Lord. We shift blame. What it, God comes to Adam. Adam says, it's not my fault, it's her fault. God goes to, to the woman. Not my fault, it's, it's the serpent's fault. We are masters at shifting blame. We're going to blame hereditary, hereditary issues here. It's, that's what it is. I just did the exact same thing. I'm not taking responsibility for my sin. I'm blaming Adam and Eve. You with me? You'll get that later. God reveals himself to him. That's what's important in this passage. God reveals himself. How? He comes looking for them. He literally moved toward them. This is the most incredible thing. He's not a God who's a hidden God saying, find me if you can. They weren't playing hide and seek. He's a God who is looking, uh, comes looking for us. Did God condemn them? No, not one time did God condemn them. And yet they wanted to be condemned. Why? Because they're over there hiding behind a little tree as if God can't see them. He created the tree. He knew where they were. He wanted them to acknowledge where they were. He moves to us. He comes to us even when we stick our nose in places that doesn't belong. Even when we double down on stupid, God shows up. So a month ago, I woke up in the doghouse. Earlier that day, I, I, on the back of our property, I'd been uh, cutting some trees and, and piling some brush. We have a German short-haired pointer. And his name's Moose, twig eater. He loves it. And so he was unpiling the brush that I was piling, working circles around me. I was falling trees, and, and, and he's out there playing. It's his garden. We've got about three acres. He loves it. It's his place. Now, the problem is there's a snake in that garden, too more of them than we can count. He loves snakes. That's his thing. A bird dog that loves snakes. Doesn't make a lot of sense. Don't get it, but he loves snakes. And so I see him barreling by me with his little nubby tail tucked between his legs. And I thought, great, he just got a snake bit or he got a would-be or, uh, you know, got something. Anyway, so I'm looking for him and I see him. He goes and hides behind a spruce tree. He's literally 30 yards away and he's kind of looking around the corner, but he's laying down. I thought, well, maybe you learned your lesson. So I continue working, and probably 10 or 15 minutes later, I feel him on the back of my legs, and he's leaning on me. I have a chainsaw running, he's leaning on me. So I turned the chainsaw off, and I turned around, I took a knee with him, and I'm telling you, this dog comes and looks in my face, and he says this to me. I'm dying, I don't know what's happened, but it's not good. You need to save me, I'm telling you. The dog was in trauma. And I held out my arms, and he just collapsed in my arms. Venom all over my arm. Blood. He got bit there and there. We spent the next eight hours and several hundred dollars in the, uh, in the emergency room. There is a pet emergency room. Uh, I hope I never have to go back there. And so as a result of that, what did I do? He's not even my dog. He's my son's dog. We bring him home, get him a shot of amoxicillin, put him on all this stuff. What, what happens? I'm a man of means. I have a house, air-conditioned house. Well, he's got to be wakened, uh, awakened every two and a half hours. My son was working out of town. I move a cot to the garage to his little pen with his doghouse where he sleeps at night. I literally moved to him so that I could make sure he's okay. I'm thinking, this is the most foolish thing in the world, however... It begins to make sense now. I wanted to make sure that he was okay. That it didn't get any worse. 
How much more does God love us in the midst of uh, foolishness? And the dog knows not to mess with snakes, you would think. He didn't really learn his lesson any more than we do. Two days later, he's fully recovered. Three days later, he's fully recovered. Chasing snakes again. The point is this. What are you hiding behind? What am I hiding behind? The last three weeks I've been looking at this passage. It's been really convicting for me. I'm hiding behind a lot of things. We hide behind the tree of self-righteousness when God comes looking for us. I'm a pretty good person, God. Right? You get that? Maybe we're hiding behind the, the tree of offerings. God comes looking for us. What do we do? We hand out our, our money. Uh, maybe it's uh, the tree of religion, our, our time with the Lord that's wrote, and there's not much relationship there. Or maybe, maybe it's the tree of moderation. This is my favorite. Tree of moderation. God, I'm just going to do it a little bit. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to do it much. What's the problem with the tree of moderation? The problem is that I'm the moderator. I decide what's right and wrong, how much or how little. That's the problem. And once I get a scent of that blood on the knife, I can't stop. The moderator is the problem. We understand the cause of this issue is sin. The loss of paradise on earth is sin. So let's close with the effect. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all have sinned. But there's great news here. In this last part of the passage, God spells out the punishment for their disobedience. Now, before we get into this and think God is too harsh, listen to what he said in, in Genesis 2. He said to them, all of the garden is yours. Enjoy it. But there's one area. He says, my holiness, which I reserve for myself. He said, stay away from it. The entire garden is yours. Don't cross the line of my holiness. When you cross the line of my holiness, then there will be a price to pay. God is not so capricious that he just starts handing out punishment unilaterally. God always warns us. He gives us a multitude of good choices. We know that. God says the same thing to you today. There are boundaries. There are lines. Don't cross over them. I warn you, if you cross over them, there are, there are, there are punishments and consequences because God is sovereign. In verses 14 through 19, here's where the consequences come in for sin. For the Lord God said to the serpent, to the snake, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the uh, beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat uh, all the, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and woman. That word literally is hostility. I will put hostility between you and woman. He's talking about God's saying between Satan right and Jesus. That's what he's saying here, literally. There's going to be hostility there. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This, this passage is called the Proto-Evangelium, which means pre-evangelism. This is the first reference to Jesus in the Bible. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. Ladies, who can we blame for pain and childbearing? Eve. So stop yelling at us in the delivery rooms. I didn't mean to say that, but that's the thing. Uh, to, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and in pain you shall bring forth children. Now listen, I've had a couple dozen kidney stones. No kidding. I don't want anything to do with childbirth. I'm, I'm a believer. So when I said that, I was inappropriate. Forgive me. I am sympathetic, empathetic with you in childbirth. 
But he goes on to say this. This is so important. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. Mm. This is the same word that's used in Song of Songs, but it's used in a different context. Your desire to control your husband is what he's saying is going to be a burden on you the rest of your life. He's saying to Eve, because you are the one who led Adam into sin, from this time on, he is going to be your leader in the household. The Bible does not ever teach um, in any way that a, man, that a woman is inferior to a man. As a matter of fact, the Bible teaches women's equality with men. However, in the home, because of this original sin, there is a hierarchy. So ladies, it doesn't come easy, does it? Let's blame Eve. And, and, and to Adam, here's what he said. Your pain's gonna come differently because you've listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree which I commanded you you should not, uh, you should not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Notice here, God cursed Satan and he cursed the ground. He did not curse man or woman. What did he do? He gave them pain. He gave us pain. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat plants of the field. No more going out and picking fruit off of trees and having a, a, a free buffet every day. You're going to have to go work for it. There's going to be rocks in the ground. And oh, by the way, ironically, it's interesting that the ground is where the snakes are contained. We'll go on from there. Hard work. The third thing he said to Adam, the environment's going to be a challenge. Man's sin shows very simply that God's sovereignty is real but it showed it in a different context. We talk about the sovereignty of the Lord and how we live. Man's sin simply shows God's sovereignty in a different context. It doesn't challenge it. Not living in paradise today is, uh, is a common day problem. It's a, it's, it's a modern day challenge because of their sin. However, our sin does the same thing for us. 